0: wouldn't it? it eventually would lead to extinction and the same is true throughout any uh, for the human race or, or for any living species that reproduction is a natural part of life without it we cease to exist but how is it that reproduction in the Christian life has become so unnatural now, I'm not talking about physical babies I'm talking about that process of God partnering with men and women in order to produce spiritual babies, seeing people come to know Jesus. How has sharing the gospel and telling people about Jesus and doing evangelism become so unnatural? Because if you go to a small group or a Bible study and you start talking about the E word, it's as if you're trying to teach Kittens how to swim. I mean, they start thrashing around and fighting you and coming up with all kinds of excuses. Evangelism is something that we have such difficulty with today, so it would seem. And in the scripture that we're looking at today, we're going to take a large chunk of scripture, uh, really a chapter and a half, so stay engaged as we read. In fact, we only have two more weeks in the book of Acts after today. Today. We have walked through this book at a pretty good clip, almost looking at it verse by verse. It's been about 13 months by the time that we will finish it. And today, as we look at this section, we're going to see Paul highlight the natural process for sharing the gospel. And there's some things that we can learn. We're just going to tell the story as it appears. And my hope is that no one in the room will feel guilty because that's the last thing that we want. Guilt is a terrible motivator. Guilt never comes from the Lord. And it's just, so whenever we talk about evangelism, there's this instant fear that begins to rise up within each of us, right? I mean, the fear of public speaking is near the top. And then talking about God to others, there's a lot of anxiety that begins to build within us. And so always remember, if there's ever a moment that you feel guilt, it's never from the Lord. It's always from Satan. So the last thing we want today is for anyone to feel guilty. But I hope that as we read this story, we'll be inspired, that uh, our passions will grow within us for sharing the gospel. In the same way that a mom and dad is passionate about their newborn baby and posting photos all over Facebook, or in the same way that uh, parents love to tell about their kids and show you pictures, in the same way that we love to share with our friends about the best movie that we've recently seen or a new restaurant, my hope is that Jesus love within us and our passion for him will grow to a degree that it will overflow in our lives. Let's look today at Acts chapter 25. Here's the deal. I'm going to read from verse 13 of Acts 25 through the end of the chapter in all of chapter 26. So get comfortable, okay? Enjoy the story. It's a great story. If you're an auditory learner, then just feel the freedom to close your eyes and listen. If you want to look at it On your tablet or phone or on the screen, go right ahead. Acts 25, beginning in verse 13. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There's a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had an opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa, and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I had nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, So that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Pick up in chapter 26. This is when things start to get interesting. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and he made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They've known for a long time if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? With the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. A goad was a pointed stick that someone who was driving an ox would use in order to goad them. And it's a point of saying that you're no luck getting away from the goad. And he's saying that he was being um, goaded, in a sense, by the Lord. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. "...delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore... O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. Underline that statement. I love it. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead he would proclaim light, both to our people and to the Gentiles. And he was, as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true true. And rational words. For the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa. Do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul. In a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said whether short or long. I would to God. And not only you but also all who hear me this day. Might become such as I am. Except. For these chains. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Whew, long passage, right? Long story. Third time that we've seen Paul share his defense and share his testimony over chapter 24 and 25 and 26. The context of this passage, if you'll remember last week, Felix had been the ruler and he was really unrighteous. He had put Paul in prison for a couple of years. And so Paul has just been sitting, wasting away in prison with Felix waiting for a bribe so that maybe he might release Paul. But Felix is thrown out of his rulership and Festus is brought in. Now Festus is in this Really tedious place. He's only been ruling for three days. He's gone from Caesarea, which would have been there on uh, the shoreline. It was a beautiful palace that Herod had built earlier. And he's left Caesarea only three days into his rulership in order to go and check on Jerusalem because he knows he's got to get a handle on how uh, to really rule over this Jewish people. And as he goes into Jerusalem, the very first thing that's brought to him is Paul. Now it's been days later, and he's back in Caesarea. And Agrippa shows up. Now Agrippa is an interesting character. He was the great grandson of Herod the Great, Herod the Great who was ruling when Jesus was born, who sought to put Jesus to death. Uh, Herod uh, Agrippa came to power when he was only seventeen, so he had no real power. They gave him a small portion of land, this modern-day Lebanon, and they said, you rule over this. But he did have the authority to both uh, control the temple, he was over temple worship there, and he also appointed the high priest here in the temple. So he's there in Jerusalem checking in on, on what's going on, and he meets Festus, this new ruler. He also, by the way, brought Bernice, his sister, who there was rumors that it was an incestuous, incestuous relationship between the two of them. So he's an interesting character. Um, while they're in Caesarea, Festus brings the case before Agrippa. Festus doesn't have any real charges that he can lay against Paul, but he's concerned about sending a man to Caesar without any real charges. Yet at the same time, he's fearful to let Paul go on account of the Jewish hostility against him. So Festus is in this real conundrum as to what to do with Paul. And so Agrippa comes in and he says, maybe you may be able to help me out. And so this this court case arises that we see in chapter 26. And in it, Paul attempts to gain the influence with Agrippa by Humbly connecting with him in verses 2 and 3, and we'll just kind of run through without reading it again, but pointing out really quickly um, what's taking place, and then I've got just three quick points I want to share with you. In verses 2 through 3, notice that Paul asks for permission in order to share. Notice that Paul isn't demanding, that he's very polite. He says, I consider myself fortunate that it's before you, King Agrippa, that I make my defense And then he says, therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. You know, a lot of times when we think about sharing the gospel, when we think about sharing a testimony or doing the work of an evangelist, many times we think of those who are brash and hateful and rude, but you don't have to be those in order to evangelize. Paul shows us that you can be polite, that you can ask for permission, that you can speak in a normal tone of voice, and that you can speak as one who's loving and caring. In verses 4 through 11, we see how Paul builds his case, and he points out the fact that all have sinned. Now, this might seem really basic to many of us, but as he builds his case, he actually builds his case uh, against the righteous. He's building his case not against those who are partying and living like the devil... He's building his case against those who are religious and serving the devil. He's building his case against those uh, who would consider themselves righteous. And he's showing that religion takes you nowhere other than to a point of self-righteousness in which your pride is in yourself and hatred. In which you say, look at all the things that I have accomplished. Look at why God loves me which causes you to build yourself up and to look down on others. And so Paul makes this case that all have sinned. And when we share the gospel, it's so important that we bring people to a point of truly seeing their sin, seeing how messed up they truly are. And we'll see how Paul continues to point this out. In verse 12, he points to his conversion. The interesting thing here is that Paul's focus is not on personal salvation, but instead it's, uh, it's on his personal calling to be a missionary. So there's a lot we can learn here. In verses 16 and 17, the first thing that the Lord does, and I want to examine 16, 17, and 18 uh, rather closely. Some of you uh, may have had the question, how do I share the gospel with someone? And as Christians today, we have to be really honest with ourselves because we, each of us find ourselves in this, this interesting spot. It's as if we hear the gospel weekly or even multiple times a week. And because we hear the gospel, we think we understand the gospel. Because we hear the gospel and because we know the old story of Jesus and His love, then we think that we are perfectly prepared to share that story. Yet what happens when you are met on the street by someone who says, so tell me what you're doing in Africa on that mission trip. How do you respond to them? How do you respond to someone when you're sitting in a cafe with your coffee group and they ask, so what are you reading and you say the Bible, and they say, why are you reading the Bible? The truth is, for most of us, when we actually have an opportunity to share our faith and to share about Jesus and His love, we find ourselves stumbling all over ourselves to even know where to start or begin, much less where to end. 90% of Christians, it's been said, will never share the gospel or see a person come to know Jesus and make a disciple. 90%. It's staggering. And so in verses 16, 17, and 18, there is an outline that Paul gives that's really helpful. You know, sometimes we talk about the four spiritual laws track, or maybe you went through a program where you were taught a basic outline for sharing the gospel, and we've kind of moved away from that at times but I want us to be really humble as a church and realize let's not let's not look back on the past and just throw away the past and say oh that's not authentic that's just presenting people with just a formula sometimes it's good to at least have an outline to know where to begin and so this is an outline that Paul gives us look in verse 16 The first thing the Lord does is to tell Paul who he is and then to tell him the purpose for which he has saved him. I love that. Paul falls down on the ground. He's falling down because the glory of the Lord is all around him. He can't see a thing. And as he falls down, look at how Jesus responds to him. Jesus' first command is, "...but rise and stand upon your feet." For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me. So oftentimes we think that our salvation is all about us and we revel in God's grace to us. But God's grace is never intended to stop. God's grace is never, our hearts are never meant to be a dead end. No, God's grace comes into us, and everything that God has done to us, God desires to do through us. And so, God desires to pour his grace out to others. And you see that as he speaks to Paul. He says, Paul, I've saved you for the purpose of sending you to the nations. And the same is true for each of us. God has saved us in order to be a witness. In order that we might be missionaries. Now look in verse 18 and you see that outline that I was talking about. You see an outline of how Paul comes to know Jesus. He says, to open their eyes. Let me back up and read verse 17. Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. To open their eyes. That's the first thing that God is going to do through Paul's life. He's going to bring conviction to people. So if you're keeping up with an outline, write down the word conviction. When the gospel goes forth, the first thing that's necessary is for conviction to take place in someone. That their eyes would be opened. To see the way in which they've been living their life is death. The way in which they've been living their life leads to a path of evil. The way in which they've been living their life is satanic because they are following a God of their own making. They've raised themselves up as God. They're following the enemy of God who is Satan. And in, those moment, in that moment, conviction must come to someone. There was a pastor who led the churches where we were in East Africa, and many churches had been multiplied through his ministry. And as he told how he came to know Jesus he had been attempting to kill his sister for 2 years i think we told this story a couple of years a uh, couple of weeks ago and as he finally met his sister face to face and she knew what he intended to do and she described her love for him and jesus love for him his words were how he described his testimony he said it was as if i regained, it was as if i gained my humanity for the first time he was a muslim and he said i realized that my religion had sent me on a path to kill my sister. And when the Lord opened my eyes, when he received conviction, he realized the evil of that path and he turned toward God and his heart was changed. Paul says that God has appointed him to open their eyes, to bring about conviction. In order to be convicted, we have to see what a mess we are and that there's no hope outside of Jesus. And so sometimes the people that we're ministering to, sometimes the, uh, the best thing for us to do is not always to help them or not always to rescue them. Because sometimes people have to get to the very worst of the worst. They have to get to the bottom in order to see just how much of a mess they are without Jesus. I've talked to so many people who they don't really get to rock bottom i have talked to so many people who they are convicted, but they're convicted and and they're sad, not because they've offended a holy God, but they're sad and they're convicted because they've been caught. And that's not a conviction that, that leads to repentance. But when we are truly convicted and our eyes are open, we realize that we've sinned against a holy God and that conviction leads to a change in our life. And Paul goes on in verse 18 and he says, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. That's the second point. The first is conviction. The second is as they turn from darkness to light, there is an illumination that takes place. That is the gospel is shared instructing them in a in a better way there is a miraculous act of the will and that may not make sense but there is this combination in which there is a miraculous act of the will in which god awakens an individual's heart and at the same time he gives them uh, the power in order to make a decision and to consciously choose to trust him god's not walking around dubbing us on the head making us robots He he gives us the real opportunity to choose through love, but He does that only through the miraculous work of His hand in which He awakens our hearts to the truths of the gospel. And we see that conviction actually leads to illumination as we see that the way that we've been going is wrong, and we turn. And then you see conversion that takes place from the power of Satan to God. And you see sanctification to receive forgiveness of sins. So you see conviction, you see illumination, you see conversion takes place in our lives in which uh, the old is gone and the new has come and then God sanctifies us and he sees us as righteous and he judges us as righteous and then Paul finally says, a place among those who are sanctified by me. He gives us an inheritance. You see this wonderful outline of all that takes place in the moment of salvation that's packed into these verses. And Paul's unpacking that and he's describing it for us. But all of it takes place by faith. Just remind us of that. That as we share the gospel, all of this takes place by faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says it this way. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It all takes place by faith. Now look in verses 19 through 23. Paul's sharing with Agrippa the results of the fact that he's walked in obedience and what's happened in his life. And then in verse 24, Paul is interrupted by Festus. And out of nowhere, Festus just shouts out with a loud voice. And he says, Paul, you're out of your mind. Paul's in the middle of his testimony. He's in the middle of speaking. We have no idea how how Paul's testimony would have ended because Festus interrupts it here for us. But look at Paul's response. He gives a rational explanation for the resurrection of Jesus. He says, Festus, you and I both know these things weren't done in a corner. What he means by that is Jesus had appeared to over 500 people at different times, in different locations, that all of Jerusalem was abuzz about this resurrected Messiah. And that's still true for today, that as we share the gospel with individuals, we need to remind them as they say, uh, man, the gospel is just for people who are weak, or you guys, you, you guys believe in crazy stuff. You're like, no, Jesus Christ, this is a man and this is a faith that has not taken place in a corner. The Bible is the best-selling book throughout all of history. Always has been, always will be. Why? Because the ministry of Jesus didn't take place in some little corner like every other religion. There wasn't some guy who found some golden tablets and some magical uh, lenses and put them on and said, Oh, I found the Bible. I found the way. It wasn't done in isolation. There wasn't an angel that appeared to an individual and gave him a vision or gave him scriptures and he came out and said, everyone, this is the way. No, Jesus came and he did public ministry in front of people and it was recorded. And we have ancient manuscripts that go all the way back to the first century, thousands and thousands of them. We have better uh, ancient manuscripts for the Bible than for any other philosopher. Or any other historian that we study that we just think of as, oh yeah, they certainly were here with better manuscripts. Why? Because this wasn't done in a corner. It was public. And look in verses 27 through 29. I love this. I want to read it. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Think about this for just a minute. Paul has been in this situation where he's just been called out by Festus. And... Paul's been respectful. He's standing before this whole tribunal that, by the way, is a little over the top. I mean, Bernice and Agrippa would have come in, most likely in their purple robes, and, you know, there's, it's just a whole entourage who are there. And there stands Paul in his chains. Come on, guys, in his chains? He's standing there before him, and they're being rude. They're interrupting him, and Paul... He's not making a case and saying, hey, I've been riding in prison for the last two years and you guys have no evidence against me. Paul is being polite. He's standing before them. He's humble. But now look at what he does. In verses 27 through 29, these are the three points I wanted to really share with you. Paul is fearless. Paul is fearless. Look, at he, he makes a direct appeal to Agrippa. And I, think this is, I think this is important for us. To realize today that sometimes God calls us to make a direct appeal. That we shouldn't always wait for our neighbor to say, "Hey, how do, how do, how can I know Jesus?" Because <laughs> they're probably not going to do that. Like it's pretty rare that you have someone. I mean, I've had a few conversations where I'm just having lunch with someone and we're talking, and God's at work in their life. Maybe there's been things leading up to it, and they say, "How do you, how do you know Jesus?" That's pretty rare. And I think that there are times where we need to make a direct appeal. And look at what Paul does. He says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Now, if some of you guys have the King James Version or maybe you've... uh, been going to been a part of a church for a long time and you've read this passage in the King James Version, really poor translation. Um, they just missed it there. Where in the King James Version, it, it kind of has this air of, I almost became a Christian. That's not at all what's taking place in the Greek grammar here. If you look, Festus, it's really difficult to understand, not Festus, but Agrippa, it's really difficult to understand exactly what he's saying, what the nuance of this statement is. In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? It's pretty harsh. And everyone most likely waited, maybe jaw dropped open. How is Paul going to respond to this? And look at what Paul says. And Paul says, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am. What a great response! What a humble response! What a direct response! Polite, but stating confidently what his intentions were. Paul was fearless. He took a direct approach. You know, the same way that God had snatched Paul from darkness to light. I mean, Paul's literally snatched off his horse. Given like almost, I mean, one commentator said that Paul was victimized by God. (laughs) Praise God that he was. And in that same way, Paul seeks to do the same with Agrippa, that he would seek to victimize Agrippa in the sense of, I hope that you would turn to God, but in such a polite way. How often, let me ask us this how often do we shy away from sharing the gospel because of the fear of man? I know I do. God forgive me. How often are we too polite? How often are we too introverted? How often are we too shy when which we miss opportunities in order to share the gospel? The cure is repentance. The fear of man, the cure for the fear of man is to fear God. And to repent of our desire to be liked by others. My neighbor asked me when I got back from the mission trips. uh, He said, so it was a mission trip to Africa? And I said, yeah. And he said, uh, and this is a neighbor that I pray for almost daily. And he said, uh, do you mind me asking, no pun intended, what the mission was? And uh, he's a neighbor who's unchurched, somewhat atheist. And I just missed it. I chickened out. I said, oh, We went over to encourage churches there in Africa. And I left it at that. And I walked inside and didn't even realize what I was doing. I shut the door and it just hit me. You just missed the biggest opportunity. You just had the opportunity to share the gospel with your neighbor. He asked you what the mission was. You could have told him, we were going house to house just sharing the gospel, just telling people, and then I could have just shared the gospel. And I just missed it. And I'm so thankful that God is gracious and it's ultimately God who knows whether my neighbor is going to come to know him. And that doesn't let me off the hook. And I'm praying that God will give me another opportunity. But Paul was fearless, and I want to be more like Paul. I want to be fearless, but Paul was also obedient. I want to point this out. He was obedient. You know, we live in a day and time in which mission is such a buzzword, missional especially. I mean, there's not a church that's planted in the South these days that doesn't claim to be missional. But the problem with buzzwords or trendy words is, If you look at uh, your mom and dad's wedding photos, you'll see that trends tend to change, don't they? Yeah. And mission, there's so much meaning that people pack into that word. And so what is mission really all about? See, some people, I think along the way as the church, and I want us to evaluate ourselves today as we wrap up. There's this tension that exists amongst the evangelical church today, and some of you, I think, feel it, okay? Walk with me for a minute. Some of you are in this camp in which you say, I grew up going to revivals. I grew up going to, if you're as old as me or older, you might have attended a revival that was actually under a tent. I went to an E.J. Daniels revival that was under a circus tent. If you went every night as a kid, the reward was you got to ride in his private plane. You got to, yeah, he had like a 12, 15 seater, and they loaded us up and took us on airplane rides. So, guess what? I was there every night. But with that, you grew up in this scenario in which you were always being run through evangelism classes, and there was always something new. There was evangelism explosion, EE. There was, If you grew up in the Southern Baptist world, it changed about every five to seven years. There was faith, and then that was too complicated, F-A-I-T-H, that's five. So then they came up with grow, G-R-O-W. And then maybe you passed out tracts, the four spiritual laws that you gave to someone. And as you did that, there was kind of this disconnect between the gospel is being explained, but it's not really being explained in context. It's just kind of being laid on people, almost like the guys who are down on Bill Street or downtown, you know, with the megaphones and, and the flag banners that are saying, like, you're going to hell, repent. And it's like, okay, that's part of the message, and that's true, but maybe not the best approach, maybe not the best context. And so, so many of us have grown up in that kind of environment, or maybe you didn't grow up in it, maybe you witnessed it. Maybe it was something that was done to you. The gospel was something that was not shared with you in a loving way, but something that you were attacked with. And so our, our many times what we'll often do is then we'll run to the other side and we'll go, no, it's just all about showing the gospel or it's all about being relational. Now, here's the truth. If you look in the Bible, how many times do you see the word missionary? Zero. If you look in the Bible, how many times do you see the word evangelism? Zero. If you look in the Bible, how many times do you see the word evangelist? Three times. He's gifted them to be apostle prophet, uh, evangelist, shepherd teacher. So it would be easy to say, so does God really call us to share our testimony and to be good evangelists? He does. So how do you get that? You get that from the fact that you take a step back and you look at the whole story of Scripture. The story of Scripture is that our God is a missionary God. Mission ultimately describes the whole story of the Bible that our God is a sending God, that He sent Jesus, and now He sends us in the power of the Holy Spirit, and He calls us to be obedient. And so his last commission to us, his most important words, and you guys know it well. As you go, in your going, as you're living life, make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the earth. You say, which side is it, Brad? Is it go and share the gospel with people and see them pray a prayer and come to know Jesus? Or is it this relational approach in which we would seek to make disciples and that we would really concentrate? And this would be what I would tell you. Both are missing the point because the cross is in the middle. And ultimately, if you look at the witness of Paul and if you look at the witness of Jesus and the whole story of the Bible, you see that God has called us, yes, to make disciples. And that process begins before the cross. And we lead people through the gospel in order to know Jesus. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Lord awakens their hearts. And as He does, we continue that process in making disciples and seeing them follow all that Jesus has commanded us to do. It's all what Jesus has called the church to do. But He's called us to be obedient. Now this is the part that I really want to ring home with us. Obedience is proof of love. Do you really love Jesus Many of us say we love Jesus, but listen to John 14, verses 15 and 16. Jesus says in John 14, 15 and 16, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Jesus says, if you really love me, you'll keep my commandments. What are Jesus' commandments? He shared a lot. He taught for three years. We don't don't even have them all. What's the most important thing that he left with us? Go and make disciples. Can we really say that we love Jesus if we aren't actively seeking to be obedient in order to make disciples? Paul was obedient. He was fearless. He was obedient, but also he cared deeply. That's the last thing. Paul cared deeply. Look at his response to Agrippa in verse 29. Look at what he says. He says, And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am. Oh, well, except for these chains. Paul didn't stand and say, look, I can't believe that I've been writing in prison for two years and that you guys have brought me here. No, there is no angst within him. There is no anger against his accusers. His desire for them is not for evil, but for good. What kind of person has that kind of love? Only a person who is filled, and Christians hear this, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Can we say we care if we don't evangelize? If you haven't seen the YouTube video from several years ago with Penn Jilliet of Penn & Teller, I just, you got to go home uh, and get on YouTube and just type in pen P-E-N-N, in evangelism. And in that, uh, pen Gilliatt, who is uh, an atheist, shares a story about a man who came up to him after a show and gave him a Gideon's New Testament. Inside, there was written the man's name and a couple of contact information, and the man said, I really enjoyed your show tonight. I'm a big fan. And I want to give you this Bible, and I'm not crazy. He said, the man said, I'm not crazy. Um, I really believe what are in these, what's in this book, and I'd love to sit down and tell you about Jesus, if you would ever allow me to. My number's in the front, and uh, I'd love to give you this book, and I'd love to tell you more about it if, if you're ever interested. And Penn, in the video, goes on to say how he was affected by the love of this man. He wasn't converted. He said, I'm not saying that there's a God, but this guy looked me in the eyes. He was polite. He told me what he wanted. and And I really sensed that he was caring in the way that he did it. And then Penn goes on, and only God could put words like this in his mouth to say. He asked this question. He says, how much do you have to hate someone not to proselytize? He goes on and he says, this man came to me and and he really believes that there's a heaven and that there's a hell. He said, if there's truly a heaven and there's a hell, and if you really believe that, how much do you have to hate someone not to tell them about it? He said, it's as if, if you're a Christian, it's as if someone is standing in the middle of the road and a Mack truck is coming towards them and you refuse to pull them out of the way. He says, but it's even more important than that. He said, how much do you have to hate someone not to proselytize? And he goes on he says, I have no respect for a Christian who doesn't proselytize. I have no respect for a Christian who doesn't tell others that there is an opportunity for eternal life if they really believe it. To believe eternal life is possible and not to tell. The thing is really interesting. Just a little life assessment for you. Um, I want to give you a quick shot of our new website, at least part of the front page. And um, it says, connecting Midtown to the life, love, friendship, and family found in Jesus. Uh, Robbie is a talented designer and, and a guy who loves the Lord, and he's helped us. As he came to know us and asked tons of questions, he's helped, helped us come um, up with this kind of purpose statement that describes who we are. And this is just a part of the page. It scrolls on down. There's a lot more information. But this purpose statement, I think, really describes us well that he helped us to craft. It says, connecting Midtown to the life, love, friendship, and family found in Jesus. I think that describes our church well. But the question is this. As you read that, it could be easy to say, oh, we're, we're a small church of 100. We're just a tight family. But I want to encourage us to think that we are a family. And what do families do? Healthy families reproduce. And how are we doing it being a family? We're growing, right? We're multiplying a missional community. Um, That's going to happen in September, and so we see growth is taking place. We've averaged about 75 this summer. We're a church of about 100. There's one day this summer where we had 94, which I think is our highest attendance ever. So more than likely this fall, I think we'll probably break 100. That's really encouraging. Yet at the same time, as we step back and look, we've baptized about 10% of this congregation. Yet over the last year, year and a half... Those baptisms have kind of declined. And as we look at who we are as a church, are we continuing to reach out and to share the gospel and to make disciples? It's an important question for us to ask. As we think not just corporately, but even individually and as families, when was the last time that you shared the gospel with someone? When was the last time maybe that you even prayed? for someone and, and looked for an open door to, to take time to pray with them and help them consider what the next step step in their spiritual conversation or spiritual journey might be. Hey, when was the last time that you invited a friend to a Sunday gathering or, or to a missional community? Now, I don't ask those questions in order to make anyone feel guilty, because my guess is that if you're like me as I studied all week long, there is a temptation to feel guilty. Because I think for every one of us in this room, we would all say, "Oh, I could do better." <laughs> oh, I'm not very satisfied with, with my answers. But the truth of the matter is that for each of us, I don't think we need any more programs. I mean, it might be true that some of us could brush up on an outline, that some of us could learn some scriptures to even know where to begin a little better. But I think for most of us, what we're missing is a love for Jesus and the encompassing dwelling of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit just overflowing in our lives that we're so excited about Jesus that we're sharing about Jesus with everyone we meet. Frederick Bauchner defines vocation as the place where your deep gladness meets the world's deep need. The place where your deep gladness meets the world's deep need. And for each of us, no matter what company cuts our salary check, that quote defines every Christian's ultimate vocation. That we're missionaries. And that the place where our deep gladness meets the world's deep need is that place in which we have the opportunity to share with them about the hope that we have in Jesus. To share that amazing news. Just a little practical advice as as we end today. Practical advice is this. Don't evaluate yourself on numbers. Instead, evaluate yourself on faithfulness. We read a book as we were preparing to go to Africa and it was entitled A Muslim's Heart. And I love the introduction because in it the author said, I've been asked to write a book in order to share some preliminaries about how you could uh, share your testimony with people of the Islamic faith. He said, let me be clear. I've shared my testimony with over 400 Muslims. I'm not an expert. I've seen four come to know Jesus. Jesus. And one of those has left the faith currently. I love the fact that he was still willing to write this book on how to share with Muslims about Jesus, even though the numbers were so small. He wasn't measuring himself on, evaluating himself on numbers, but instead on his faithfulness. Secondly, I want to remind you that the kingdom of God most often advances in really small steps. Go back and read Mark chapter 4 sometime if you're discouraged about uh, your level of evangelism. And, and read, I was reading back through some of those parables this morning. Um, in Mark chapter 4, Jesus talks about the parable of the seed growing. He talks about, it's like a, it's like a farmer who scatters seed and he goes and he sleeps And the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces. And then he goes on, he talks about the parable of the mustard seed, how something very small becomes something big. And what we see is that the kingdom of God, oftentimes we think about the big evangelists, and we think about the big circus tents, and we think about youth camp where everyone was gloriously saved, and we baptized them in the ocean, and we celebrated. The truth of the matter is that the kingdom of God often, and most times, moves forward in very small steps. In conversations in the front yard with your neighbor, when you're taking out the garbage and never thought that you'd have the opportunity to share your faith, the kingdom of God oftentimes moves forward in very small steps, in circumstances in which someone is growing and you don't even know it, and they ask you, hey, you go to a church, could I come to church with you sometime? Did you know most people who are de-churched or unchurched are open to attending church, but they say that their Christian friends never invite them? you know that? Most people who don't have a church family and don't know God say they're rarely invited by their Christian friends, and they find it odd that they spend years and years with neighbors and people who they know are Christians, but they never get invited to their church. Many say that they would come if they were invited. Other statistics show that it takes as many times as four, five, or six invitations for someone to come. How often do we get discouraged with just one? How often did Jesus invite us? The kingdom of God most often often advances in small steps. So we should seek to be active daily and to depend on the Spirit. And finally, we should surrender ourselves completely to God and allow Him to do His work because He's the one who saves. We can't save anyone. Don't fool yourself. You can present the gospel all day long, but it's only God who opens their eyes to the truth and who gloriously saves people. Today, we're going to worship through communion. And uh, I I would just encourage you that I'm going to ask the band to come up and join me on stage. And they're going to play. And uh, as they play, I just want to encourage you just to take a few moments before you come and just to remember Jesus' love for you. This time in which we come to his table is a beautiful time. I don't have the time this morning to share with you all the illustration and, and language behind this communion table but it is a reminder of the marriage ceremony that back in Palestine when a man would uh, come to marry a woman his father would go and would negotiate a bride price and then he would be told you come back to your father's house and you build a portion onto the house and as he built that portion on his father would tell him I'll tell you when we're done and the bride wouldn't know when her groom was coming for her she would wait she would wait She would wait, but she was prepared. And when the father said, hey, the house has been built, what did Jesus say? I go to prepare a place for you. And If I go, I'll come again to receive you unto myself so that where I am there you may be also. The father would say to the son, your house is complete. You may go and get your bride. And the bridal party would come together and they would blow the Shema. And as they came together, they would go and they would gloriously and joyously, they would gather the bride and they would come together for a wedding ceremony and in this same way they would take the cup and they would drink together. And this is all ceremonial language in which Jesus is reminding us that He has loved us with an everlasting love and that we're His bride and that He's coming back for us one day. And that the bride price that's been negotiated is the highest that's ever been paid. That He gave all of His life for us. As we think about the grace that's been poured into us, would you take a moment just to humble yourself and ask God that He would then pour his grace not just into us but through us in order that we would see his kingdom come and his will be done and the mercy hill church in the months and years in front of us not for our own glory but for the glory of jesus would see many people enter his kingdom let's pray together father we are grateful for your story it is a story of redemption and it's a love story jesus we're thankful that you're crazy about us we're thankful that you love us, and not only that you love us, but that you even like us. And that you've told us that you've placed our sins as far as the east is from the west, and that you remember them no more. And you've poured out your blood for us. God, we pray today that you would fill us, and that you would remind us of the mercy that you've shown us. God, I pray that if there's anyone who's here today who, like Paul, trusting in their own righteousness or following a path that's far different than you I pray that they would not come to this table but that they would come and find someone that they would talk to me that they would talk with a missional community leader that they would talk with a friend and find out how they can know you Jesus I pray for Christians who are here that we would evaluate our lives that we would evaluate our love and evaluate our faithfulness and evaluate our obedience Holy Spirit fill us up to overflow Jesus. Amen. You're invited to his table.